You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio based or banner ads, but on a case by case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at one of us net at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage one of us.net and sign up for a subscription at two, five, ten, or twenty five dollars and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. This digital noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. Hey, Digital Noises, back! I'm here with my best buddy, Aaron! How you doing, Aaron? What? <laughs> I know you are excited for this week's show. Oh my god, okay, the, there are so many different little film fetishes of mine that get tickled in the stack. Like, like I, I know that I'm not technically supposed to do, do this, but I think every single title in this entire stack is a banger. Okay, like, uh, that like, never happens, though, right? Like, it's like, you know what, you can probably blind buy... With one exception, almost everything in this stack for me. The worst thing in this stack is part of a franchise, and even though I'm not a big fan of it, it's still the best film in that franchise. I know. I I, I remember finishing it just going like, okay, well, you know, I I didn't hate that, and that's a huge victory. And I swear, I know that like Aaron was like, I got to pull back some. I just got a promotion. So, and I was like, well, we need new digital noise guys. So we had Wright join the crew. So there'd be less and smaller stacks and all that. But then I sent hand you this stack and I swear it was not on purpose. It was just by date of release. I was like, damn, dude, everything in here is pretty fucking badass. It's also <laughs> like the biggest stack I've gotten in a long time, but it worked. It works. Well, uh, I it mean, it makes up for it. Uh, to be fair, one of the, the the groups of here were ones that I knew you were watching anyway, because uh-huh. of who you are. Yeah, that's true. Because we're kaiju fans, or I should say, I'm a casual kaiju fan, and uh, why don't you just swing the camera over to your art there? Oh, oh, okay, yeah. For anyone watching, I just bought this. Uh, this is a legitimate, real piece of art with paint on it and everything. Yeah. It's a 59 by 52 painting of Godzilla by a local Austin artist uh, that I bought over the weekend because I might be a little bit of a kaiju fan. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Um, little bit. <laughs> I also bought this super colorful shirt that Chris was making fun of before camera, but I think it makes me look sexy and you can see my chest hair. It's like, this is like an episode of HBO Undercover all of a sudden, yeah. like Swingers episode. <laughs> you know what? My wife loves it, and that's what matters. Sure. And she's like, I can't wait to see what the other girls think of it at the meeting later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I won't be wearing this at any work meetings. All right. So my apologies to the people who put out Lionsgate, who put out Flashback. Uh, this movie from 2021 just came out because we meant to cover it last show with me and Aaron and I just fucked up and didn't put it on the list. 
my mistake. Very sorry. And I know Aaron was very disappointed because he was like, oh, man, I'm excited to talk about this film. And I don't know why he didn't say it during the show. But well, because I never know, like, oh, did, did we just decide that something change and we're just not going to talk about it? I am always like, up. we must be calling an audible. And so we're just I'm just going to go with it. I mean, it stars two actors I really like, Dylan O'Brien and Micah Monroe, uh, who are both sort of like horror staples in their way. Uh, I mean, Dylan O'Brien in, was in the Maze Runner films, which got progressively more horror and zombie-oriented as they went along, and Micah Monroe has been in a shit ton of horror, most notably It Follows, as the lead character in that. And then it's also kind of somebody who's a huge fan of Donnie Darko making this film, presumably yeah. director for, director-writer Christopher McBride. I mean, literally, the, the, the primary character is even named Freddy Fritzell, where I'm like, it's so alliterative- it's like, like Donnie Darko, Freddie Fritzell, like, okay, that's not coincidental. And neither are all the other qualities of this film, which are designed to be a cult film. And unlike a lot of other films that are designed to be a cult film, maybe might actually transcend into a cult film. I don't know. People aren't talking about flashback right now, but they might be in a year or two. Well, I'm not going to lie. I ended up really kind of digging this movie. I went in with relatively fair to Midland expectations, but it, it doesn't take long before they kind of adopt the persona of, hey, so like you're just perceiving time unstuck and you're kind of a pseudo Doctor Who-esque figure. And then what happens after that? And I find that any time a movie goes in and actually is like, nah, the main characters are jumping through time and dimension and space, I'm automatically a little bit into it. I think all of my issues with the movie actually come from primarily the editing hmm. and a little bit of the scripting. Because it feels like they push it a little too, this is an independent kind of horror movie, kind of not. And I almost would have enjoyed it more if it leaned into the concept more and away from the horror a little bit. But that's not what the filmmakers wanted to make. That's me just like, you know, spitballing for what I what I guess I wanted. Fair enough. Uh Freddie, played by Dylan O'Brien, as I said, is a guy who's about to turn thirty. He seems to be doing pretty good overall. He's got a gorgeous girlfriend and Karen, played by Hannah Gross. They live in a really, really, really badass apartment. Uh he's got a job that pays well, but it's a cubicle job, which, you know, I spent my entire life avoiding, so right off the bat I sort of like against oh, it. <laughs> you know? I, I related to that more than I care to admit. I'm sure. It's a cubicle <laughs> farm, as it were. Uh, but his mother is very ill, and she's suffering from some sort of dementia in a hospital bed, and he's going in, and he starts having nightmares and dreams that tie back to experiences when he was a young adult, I presume high school, uh, where he gets turned on by a local, the bad girl, the bad goth girl played by Micah Monroe, who ends up being part of a group of people, uh, Emery Cohen and Keir Gilchrist, who are taking this drug that we've already seen before that are like being talked about by like, oh, this drug mercury, it's bad. We got to figure out how to stop you from taking it. And because he wants to fit in, because he likes the girl, he ends up taking it himself. All right. So here's the key moment here is that he takes this drug that is a psychedelic drug. And now this goes into sort of a synchronic, if you've seen that movie, yeah. realm, where 
time is not just a concept. It's the idea in quantum physics that time doesn't happen in a uh, straightforward way, that it all is about perception, that he starts more and more realizing that that is the case and starts through re-experiencing these things from his past, realizing that maybe everything wasn't the way he thought it was. Maybe he's forgotten about a lot of stuff. Maybe that, like... A lot of things that are very philosophical are relevant in this film in a very abstract sort of way, which deeply resemble Donnie Darko yet again. (laughs) Is it weird that I just realized how similar the core conceit is of this movie to um, uh, The Arrival Uh, (laughs) with with the ability to experience time throughout uh, different phases of your life kind of concurrently? And it's like all about how that really affects you as a person. Cause like the, the one thing that I think makes this movie stand out from admittedly something like Donnie Darko, which I enjoy, but also it, it has its point or it, it has its times that I'll enjoy it. Um, but like this movie very much tries to tell an emotional story and tries to tell a story where you end up seeing the journey that the character comes to. Like, I, I really dug the ending, basically. Whereas Donnie Darko, uh, I'm kind of okay on the ending. I thoroughly enjoyed where they went with this movie. And for those not on the video review, Chris vehemently disagrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think Donnie Darko is an unassailable masterpiece. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and, and I'll admit that's mostly my failing because I've only seen the director's cut, which oh, I understand well, is uh, not unwatchable. As yeah, not as good. Not not as good, but nonetheless, this deals with a lot of the same ideas. And I don't feel like it's trying to be like a ripoff in terms of like specific things happening in it, but I have no question that these guys like Donnie Darko a lot and wanted to do something kind of similar to it. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see this become kind of a cult thing. I think all the performances are really good. I like the way that this goes into abstract thinking of like the idea of time and the way it goes. And it's never to the point where it's so abstract that a general audience can't follow what's going on. I think, I think maybe that's part of the problem that it's not abstract enough. And I think also part of the problem is that the soundtrack isn't as good as Donnie Darko, where it was like, Oh, they had these amazing. And I don't mean the songs. I mean, the score where they would get these moments where like the score travels you through confusing moments of be like, wow, it's mystical and crazy and weird. And this doesn't really have that going on. It, the aesthetics and the art quality of this are not up to the level of, of Richard Kelly's first film and only Richard Kelly's first film. Um, it's not quite there, but it is interesting. If there was yeah. no Donnie Darko, this is the film we would be talking about in Donnie Darko type tones, though. I have no doubt. I agree completely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think if you like that sort of thing, this is a movie you really should be seeking out to check out because it's got a great cast. It's well shot. I mean, the Blu-ray's got a limited amount of bonus stuff. There's like three deleted scenes that add up okay. to about like four minutes. And the director's commentary, and that's about it. But there's more than enough interesting stuff here that if that sort of film is your cup of tea, my God, you should totally go out of your way to check it out. Because it's possible you'll be like, oh, this at the very least, it's way better than S. Darko. Uh, you know, I, I think that this movie is going to blow some fucking minds on college campuses. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, could be, could be. Uh, let's go on to our next film, which is 
Okay, are you ready, Aaron? I know you're ready for this. I'm just going to let you take over at this point because I don't know what I'm doing because we're going to get into the kaiju section of the show. All right, so we're going to talk about Arrow's new release of the Diamond Trilogy. No, no, no. We're talking about How Beyond the Fog first. Oh, shit. I skipped that in my links. Then we're going to talk about How Beyond the Fog. All right. Um, Why are we talking about it? The reason we're talking about How Beyond the Fog is it's a short film. It's about half an hour. Uh, put on by fans of the kaiju genre. And so what it does is it tells a feudal era Japan-esque kaiju story mixed with a artistic poetry-inspired um, tale of a kid reconnecting with his family, also with the past of the area around them. And so what's special about the movie is that all the human parts are played by puppets. The entire movie is marionettes. Think, think Team America, but more art film than, you know, South Park. Yeah. And it essentially is about a mountain that houses a god, which is going to be a common theme in today's yes. episode. Coming forward, um, yes. <laughs> who comes with the fog and controls the fog, and it it's basically Nessie, you know, the Loch Ness Monster, but on land. And just want to add here, the puppetry is amazing. It is a beautiful creation. Don't, don't disagree so, with you. Uh, it walks through the land, and if you happen to get in its way, it's probably going to fuck you up, but it's not necessarily a super hostile, aggressive kaiju or god. It's just, it's doing its thing, and it's home. Um, and at the same time, the human story involves uh, this woman who is kind of the... Basically, there's a family that has some drama, and it's... They're being pushed to sell their land and develop it because they can make money and be wealthy instead of barely being able to afford things. And the owner's going, you know what? No, there's a god up on the mountain. I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to honor God. Uh, and when local people basically decide, I don't care, we're going to make this happen anyways, and try to murder the woman, it angers the god, because it has a very close spiritual connection, and it just kind of wrecks shit. And so it's this very slow, poetic, methodical, beautifully shot kaiju puppet film, that if you are a fan of kaiju cinema... Like, like, I'm not talking about the people who laugh at the silliness of it necessarily, or ones who think that a kaiju movie with no human characters would be good, but ones who actually like really like to go in and watch the weird human uh, and message-filled stories that kaiju films often are. This is amazing. I, I adored the hell out of this. Movie. I knew you would, brother. I knew you would. It wasn't my thing, but that's like, okay. I, I squeed when you handed this over to me. Ah, uh, you, he did. I'm telling you right now, he literally, he peed his pants. I saw it happen. It was amazing. I had to change clothes before I drove home. It was, <laughs> it was, it was an inconvenience, but worth it. And this is an adaptation of our, of all things for a kaiju movie, a Ray Bradbury's short story, The Foghorn, which I read after I saw this. And to say it's an adaptation of that story is, it's a stretch, but, Okay. (laughs) There's fog. There's fog. (laughs) There's something out in the fog. There's something about a foghorn. I don't know. Uh, um, It's all that story also influenced what is arguably the first kaiju film ever made, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which, by the way, is an American film, which is weird. And I never would have thought that in a million years. Didn't know that till I was reading up about this. But really? Yeah. Yeah. Arguably, Uh, that was that film was the influence 
for Godzilla. That, that, that is the favored headline of slightly douchey news reporters every time an American Godzilla comes out, which is the, hey, did you know that it's actually an American creation? Right. I don't mean to be that guy. I'm not <laughs> trying to be that guy. I'm just saying that that was, in fact, first. And when you watch that and you watch Godzilla, you're like, okay, clearly Godzilla was caging from that. But Godzilla also went on to make 70 or something movies and multiple. It, it's in the 20s. It's in the 20s. Yeah. I'm just, it's up there with Bond. Yeah, whatever. I'm just saying. I This is fine. It's 37 minutes. I mean, the monster looks cool. I had a problem with the puppets not having any sort of, like, there's no... Okay, that bothered me too. No voice. There's no m- mouth movement. They're just like marionettes. Uh, and they're like, oh, there's a narration over, but they don't actually, like, just shake them a little to show they're talking. And that always drives me crazy. But that's just me. I think overall, though, the aesthetics of this, all the stuff they did for the background, all the stuff they did for the creature is cool enough that anybody who really digs kaiju shit, this is kind of an essential must watch. Am I wrong? Yeah. It, it, it is. It's an essential watch, but it's also, as you said, it's super niche. Mm. Like, niche niche. Yeah, and there's some bonus features here, and if you... Uh, there's a limited edition version of it that I'm not sure is sold out or not, but, like, that Ma- our buddy Matt Frank, who does Giganticast here for the site, did the alternate cover of... Well, that's the regular cover, I think, but... Wait, yeah. really? No, no, no. No, no, that's, that's the... Oh, you didn't get the alternate cover, then. You have the regular one. Here is the other cover. There's that. Yeah, no, you had the regular one. Sorry, you didn't uh, get the limited edition one. Sorry, my, mis- my mistake. I was so excited. No, but there's a limited edition Matt Frank co- copy out there anyway. It's funny because he gave me that copy. I was like, what, you weren't going to give me the one that you had? You were the art on? Okay, I see how it is. <laughs> I see how it is. Anyway, I'm just kidding. We all love Matt Frank. But yeah. Check it out. We're going to go on to our big kaiju thing here, which is one things that Matt's been bugging me forever as one of my closest friends here of like, you've seen because of Matt, all the Godzilla films. And I've seen literally every Godzilla film. I've seen literally every, uh, uh, camera, uh, camera film. And he's like, but you haven't seen Daimajin. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, as close as a white guy from Texas can say. Fair. And I was like, what the fuck is Daimogen? Well, Daimogen is like a big ancient stone god, samurai god that when people fuck over people who live in small villages, he lives near his mountains that he lives on. He comes to life all green faced and kills all the bad guys and sometimes gets a little carried away. All right. So Arrow has put out a limited edition trilogy with all three of the films in this series, uh, Return, Dimogen, Return of Dimogen, and Dimogen Strikes Again, I-, I can only imagine right now Matt being mad, like, that's not how it's pronounced! I'm sorry. If I, it's wrong, I'm sorry. But with artwork by him, with a really nice set, so it's super cool in that sense, Arrow put it out. If you love this sort of thing, this is, like, the best version that's ever been produced. Mill Creek put out a version of for, uh, a few years ago, like, a, of all three of them, but without all the bonus features, without all the cool physical features, this is the best version ever here from these 1966 films. And I say 1966 films because all three of them came out in 1966. They were, hey, uh, our studio is dying and real fast, we're having a hard time keeping up with the other big companies. So we're just going to get, we're going to set the basics of the story out to three different directors and just go like, just make one as fast as you can, which is I'm why, not going to lie. 
I thought the Wrath of the Diamond Gen came out in 67. No, which is Holy why shit. all three of these are basically the same fucking movie. Now, I will say the third one adds a different element, which is going to be, for some people, absolute anathema, but, you know, whatever, where the focus is on, like, four little kids who are experiencing it firsthand, so it adds a sort of, you know... A different element to it, look, as opposed to the first two. But the basic idea is that Daimajin is this mountain god. People come and they fuck with the people who are protected by the mountain god, who are evil, and they usually take over from a previously existing um, good organization of samurai, because this is all period piece stuff. Uh, said people pray to the god. He does nothing until bad people show up and desecrate Daimajin, and then he bleeds out of his statue, comes to life, and... That only happens in the first movie. No, it happens in the third movie, too. He doesn't bleed from the statue? He bleeds in the third one. Okay, I might have to go rewatch that. I saw it when they kill the hawk. Uh, okay, okay, fair. Yeah. Sorry. You're yeah. right, you're right. So, anyway, point is, is that he comes to life, he kills all the bad guys, sometimes shot for shot... In some of these, especially the third and the third and the first one, which are ultimately the most, the third one's the most different from the first two, because the first two are basically the same fucking movie almost entirely. But the third one at least has like this whole different perspective until the last 10, 20 minutes. And then it's like, wow, it's exactly shot for shot the same film. Like, like points where I was like, Oh my God, that is quite literally like you could have like just taken that shot from the previous film. Kind of surprised they didn't. And just go like, yeah, that's exactly what they did because they were filmed as a last ditch attempt to try and sell some fucking shit during that time. Now, people who love kaiju like Daimajin. And why? Because Daimajin's fucking cool. He's a giant stone samurai that comes to life with a crazy green face that said to my wife, he looks like Brian Salisbury a little bit. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who gets revenge and brutally like he like when he kills people it's much more brutal often than other kaiju films like he straight up impales people with his sword or whatever that's cool but after watching all three of these i went there's no reason to watch more than one of these i don't know so, which which one i would say to watch but like just pick one and you kind of get it they're worse. all good they're just like so so you're right that's the key flaw is that structurally they're all the same movie <laughs> Um, there's a little more of a political bend. These movies are very much about like ineffective and cruel leaders downtrodding the average, um, working class people. Um, and they're also very angry movies, but what you're leaving out is even though they are the same movie, they're actually shot really well. The second, I think the weakest of the three, although it does have this amazing sequence in the middle where the Daimajin basically turns into Moses and parts the Red Sea and, like, <laughs> yeah. walks from an island to land so bizarre. on the ground. It's, oh, I loved it. And like, I guess, like, part of what I love about this film series is that it feel it's nice to think of this world where just there are these gods out in the middle of nowhere, and if you fuck over the working class people, and if you're a shitty leader... This god is going to get angry and come and just rip your buildings to pieces and stomp you into dirt. Or, yes, stab you through the chest and drop you into boiling oil because, you know, you boiled some people in there earlier on. Yeah, um, I, I think yeah. 
the first and second are are rough to watch, especially back to back, because the first and second movie are the exact same movie, just shot differently. Um, I mean, I just think pick the first one. is the first is better because the second is a little too much boat action. No, I agree. But the second does have some craziness. The third one, I, I actually think it feels enough like a different movie that it didn't bother me. Like, yes, you are right that the last ten minutes is Diamondjoe wrecking stuff up, uh, but. It, with the approach of a kid's film and with it being them essentially trekking across like crazy, untamed, dangerous wilderness to get their dads back who were made slaves, I was into that film. And there is a section in that movie that legitimately brought me to tears because I'm a dad and I'm a sucker for stuff. And I was not ready for how, how intense it got. But... Like, I legitimately think one and three are good movies. You warned me about that particular thing, because let me just say, not all the kids make it through the one. Yeah. And then when the one dies, I was like, did I miss something? Did one of the kids die? It happened so oh, fast. I wasn't even clear it happened. You're right. It is a quick shot, because, they, you know, I mean, you don't want to throw a kid in rapids. But, like, <laughs> they also I mean, linger you did. on it afterwards. Like, after the, the kid, unfortunately, does not make it, they sit there and are like... Yeah, we know you just watched something kind of sad, so we're going to sit with the main characters as they process that loss and figure out what it means for their lives going forward. <laughs> and I kind of ugly cried when that happened. All right. That's but, fine. But, like, I, I dig this movie. I think it's shot really beautifully. Even if it is the same movie, I think the directors did a good shot of infusing the movie with mood. And they shoot it in a way that you don't see a lot, actually, with kaiju films. He's a There's a lot of... He's a cool monster. Right? Yeah, he he's is. a cool well, they, kaiju. They he's not like well. other kaijus, right? Like he and, has a very distinct, different from any of them sort yeah. of thing. But it's a shame that all three films are basically the same film. I mean, I, to it some is. level, I recommend the third film the most. I think it's the best made of any of them. But that being said, if you have a real problem with films that spend a lot of time focusing on kid heroes, then and a lot of people do, it's like, yeah, maybe just go to the first film instead. I mean, do, do, Go watch the first film, and if it's your cup of tea, go check out three and then two after, like, a month has gone by and you don't feel like you're watching the same movie. I mean, none of these are bad movies. It's just I can't imagine just, going need, finding a need to watch more than one of them. I disagree entirely, but I, I respect your opinion. I know. <laughs> There are a lot of bonus features here. Uh, the first one is audio commentary by Stuart Galbraith the fourth, who... I presume as a critic, I did not listen to it. I don't know if you did. Oh, actually, one thing I wanted to call out, and this is legit. So because of the way my life is, it's kind of chaotic. I tend to watch these movies dubbed because I've seen most of them subtitled already. This is, and I, I say this without hyperbole, hands down the best dub job I have ever seen in my entire life. Wow. I, I had uh, a friend stay with us for a couple of days during the period when I was watching this and she watched part of it and she legitimately thought they were speaking English at one point Jesus, because they do so well with the timing and matching the mouth movement with the words. Yeah. It is legit. I watched the English version as well and I thought it was pretty good. Uh, there's an introduction to Daimajin by Kim Newman, who's a regular on the Arrow, a uh, film critic who's a regular on the Arrow stuff, talking about the overview of these things. Uh, there's Bringing the Avenging God to Life for about 17 minutes, which is a piece with of Japanese film historian Ed Godzizu. I don't know, he's Polish, I guess. <laughs> um, alternate credits from the US release. 
Uh, there's multiple different trailers and image gallery. Return of Daimajin comes with audio commentary by Jasper Sharp and Tom Mess. My Summer Holidays with Daimajin, which is a 33-minute thing with Professor Yoneo Ota, director of the Toy Film Museum at the Kyoto Film Art Culture Research Institute, talking about the production of the films. There's alternate opening credits, trailers, storyboards, including from storyboard to screen, bringing Return of Daimajin to life. Uh, which does comparisons. Wrath of Damagen comes with an interview with Fujio Morita for an hour and a half, a career overview uh, featuring this cinematographer of these films. But most uh, there's a little bit of introductory te- text in English, but most of this in Japanese with English subtitles, and that comes with trailers and teaser and uh, image galleries and what have you. But like, uh, for if you're like Aaron, you're, you 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 pretty much have, or Matt Frank who did the art for this, you pretty much have to own this. I don't think you have a choice. It's you the don't, law. You don't. It's required. We're going to talk next about another Arrow film set that was much more up my personal alley of the stuff that I like, and that is Vengeance Trails for Classic Westerns. And I remember when I handed this to you, you were like, you, you've made me watch a lot of these spaghetti westerns from Arrow, because they put out a lot of them, and they're not always great. And I'm like, Aaron, these are really good. And you're like, uh-huh. And then you started texting me. You're like, holy shit, Chris, these are really good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the previous high water mark for Arrow Western sets has been the Sartana set, uh-huh. which had some iffy parts, but was mostly pretty good. Yeah. Every single one of these movies, I think, is more fun than almost that entire set. I mean, some of these are better in some ways than the films you might be more familiar with than if you're a big yeah. spaghetti Western fan. So there's four of them. We'll just go one at a time. And like, we're not going to spend too much time on it here, but I think one of the best ones is massacre time, which is a terrible title, but it is a 1966 one with the great Franco Nero played Django, of course here in the lead. And it's directed by horror stalwart Lucio Fulci, who also did a lot of Westerns in his time. And this is a, as you might expect, a deeply brutal Western in some ways here. Uh, like I, I my fucking uh, mind. <laughs> it's, it's a guy, he's a prospector. He gets a message from someone saying, you need to go back home uh, to your mom. Uh, he goes back there and he finds that his house is like a shack at this point. It's, 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 it's falling apart. Uh, People are telling him in the town, like, oh, Mr. Scott owns this town now. I know if you watch a lot of Westerns, it sounds familiar to you already. Uh, he goes back into town. He sees that the, the Scott sign is everywhere. Uh, he He's a wealthy businessman. Uh, but as it turns out, there are twists here involved with his relationship with this particular character. Uh, his brother is there, but he's t- kind of turned into a total drunk and has given up. There's a lot of interesting stuff here, but it gets super, super, super brutal for Spaghetti Western and is really fun to watch. The music is good. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I could say these things about all the films in the series, but. You know, I, I think that this is the best film, like from a film quality standpoint, story structure and filmmaking technique of them all. It's faulty. Um, it is. It's Fulci. Like they, and that's one thing I'm impressed with all of these movies is they shoot them really well. Mm. Um, although it, it's not in any way the one that was most exciting to me. So like, like th- this mm. is a good movie. It has a little bit of an anticlimactic ending, I felt. Um, but otherwise, there's a lot of really good twists and turns, and there's some narrative shifts that 
I legitimately did not see coming, yeah. which coming from a spaghetti western is a pretty huge bar to hit. Um, yeah, th- this is just a great movie. It's fun. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, the next one is My Name is Pecos, which, by the way, interesting trivia, out of many, many, many spaghetti westerns that had My Name Is in the beginning title, this was the first one to do that. This is also what my wife, what my wife thinks of as My Name is Pickles, because every <laughs> time I tried to explain her to her, I would go, hey, yeah, yeah, it's My Name is Pickles. And it just sounds like I'm saying pickles. It just, yeah. Uh, this follows, uh, Pecos Martinez, Robert Woods, who. Pickles Martinez. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, who, when he was a child, saw his family wiped off by, wiped out by a guy named Joe Klein, played by Pierre Piello Caponi. Uh, but now he's a grown man and he's out for revenge, but Klein owns a whole small town. And so Pecos has to come in and like take out all the stuff, but he uh, comes up with a very clever plan to live and this is another like i i you know the only reason i'm not going into more length is because we've got a long show here and there's a lot of stuff to cover but wow this was really good yeah it is uh it it adds a racial element there's a lot of like oh those dirty mexicans aspect to this movie but all the main characters are mexicans so that at least was refreshing or at least played mexicans um but this was a good movie the action is good the story is it's very you've been there and seen that i think this is the one that like from a script standpoint was the least impressive but it it has some really well filmed sequences and the action is good like i i dug this one too actually i'm just gonna say that while all of them they're, they're all good yeah uh they really man i i was so worried that you would be like man fuck this set i'm like because i love this sort of shit and you're like there's you he kept texting me going like you're so right every last one of these are great <laughs> funny enough the next one here is done by a guy who's crossed over into giallo um, massimo dalamano who did this film called banditos and he was known for a classic giallo film what have you what have you done to solange which i've still not seen but I know it's supposed to be great. It's on Shutter. I'll get around to it eventually. <laughs> but Bandidos is, I was going to say, it's the one that I think most impressed me. Mm. Uh, like from a script standpoint, because it, it follows this guy, Richard Martin, who is basically a traveling gunsmith who in the opening sequence gets maimed and is the only survivor in a train robbery done by the villain who's Billy Kane Uh, ending, which by the way is my favorite shot in the entire set, which is like a five minute, just pan across this train where every person has died. It's an amazing end. Agreed. Um, But it follows him years later as this like destitute old guy who's training up a crack shot to essentially go get revenge on, billy kane for him and there's a lot of good twists and turns in it every character is they do a good job of every character being out for themselves but never quite being as evil and just horrible as you expect them to be except except for billy kane yeah um and, and it also has i thought one of the better uh, except for the next one, uh, climaxes. Cause that's what it came down to for a lot of these movies is how good the actual act of revenge that it was themed around was. And, and this it was one had a good ranked. one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. This is a great one. But there's a lot of stuff here that's really like, wow, that is grotesque, but in the, a cool, inventive way, not gory, but like conceptually Just grotesque. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, yeah, this might be my favorite of the series actually as well, but I also really like the next one. Oh. And, and God said, said to Cain, which is by far the best title of any of these, but also this has Klaus Kinski as the lead, who is the I, hero, which you don't see a lot with Klaus Kinski. Well, it, so he's the hero. I put that in quotes. Quotes. And yeah. so this is actually, if I had to pick like what my favorite of this set was, it's And God Say to Cain. Cause so Klaus Kinsey is a guy who, like everyone, every other main character in the set, got fucked over horribly. Um, and it begins with him getting out of a hard labor prison camp. And he shows up in this tiny shack, tells the, the son of, obviously the wealthy landowner like hey by the way i know your dad and i'm gonna come visit and say hey tomorrow and then proceeds to turn into jason Voorhees, uh because <laughs> the dad of course wronged klaus kinski and has been sitting there twirling his evil mustaches and living on the wealth of the evil shit that he did and klaus kinski comes in not really to like get back what was his but just to to pay the piper and what proceeds is klaus kinski with a rifle and nothing else systematically killing everyone in a small town scene by scene it is indistinguishable from a slasher film except the main character is the slasher i adored this movie and loved every fucking second of it it was great and and it's even as you get deeper into the movie you know they they really start focusing more on the main on the villains because they they might spend more time with the villains than with the hero in this movie because they keep him for a lot of it as this like shape in the background. Yeah. And they may, the villains get increasingly more and more manic and start killing themselves in accident and are in panic mode. And the whole thing appropriately ends in a giant fucking fire. It has the best climax out of the series. I adored this movie. This was my favorite in the set. By the way, by the director of your Hunter from the Future. I'm just saying. <laughs> For you Brian Salisbury types out there. I which, didn't know that. Who I can't believe you've referenced twice in the show. Like, uh, he, he does... What's the name of a show? God damn it. Uh, junk Food Cinema. Junk Food Cinema. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> he used to work from the um, one of us. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is... Klaus Kinski, in a very rare role, as a good guy, but he's not really a good guy. He's a, a guy... He's right, but... Man, vengeance is mine, saith the Kinski. Yeah. Yeah, it's restrained too. I, I was comparing him to Michael Shannon to my yeah. wife. Like, like you that. know if Klauski's if if Klauski if Klaus Kinski's in this movie, he's gonna lose his shit in one sequence and it's gonna be amazing. And that never happens. Somebody it's should totally this- start their career by being Clownski and just like oh. they're Klaus Kinski but as a clown. Oh my god, that's a whole I thing. Re- I would be terrified by that. Klaus are terrifying. <laughs> and Klaus Kinski is terrifying. It's like my worst nightmare. He scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I, as he did many, many people because he was a bad, bad person in real life. But he was a really intense, awesome actor in his period. He's long since dead. He's getting no money from this. It's okay. Yeah, just, just don't think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, we need a palate cleanser after all that, don't we? Like something a little sweet, something a little nice. Don't you think? Yeah. 
Yeah, feel some real genuine emotional connection to something. Because those things are like, they're all four of those. They're brutal, murderous spaghetti westerns. Like, I like my spaghetti westerns, but Jesus, sometimes you need to like lighten up a little. And that's why our next movie is Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street. We reviewed this on the site. Uh, I was not on the review for this. We actually did a Scrinder Squad review because so many people on my crew were like, oh my God, this is coming out. Can I please review it? I'm like, really? All you guys? Because even though I'm like 30 years older than a lot of the crew on the site, hey, we all grew up on Sesame Street, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I was like the first group because like, like, arguably there are probably people about five years older than me that the first group but still that was the cutoff like that grew up with sesame street it's been going on for a long 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 time and it has changed so many things it's educated so many people and the idea there's a documentary film about sesame street is kind of a no-brainer i mean this can't be the only one right i but i looked i couldn't find another really outside of really really hyper focusing on one person because I think there's a documentary about Henson, Jim Henson, yeah, obviously, who was a big part of it. But I was like, wow, Sesame Street is like, really was a big deal. So this is inspired by a book, Street Gang, by Michael Davis. It looks into the program here. It premiered at uh, Sundance Film Festival when it came out on April 23rd, 2021. Uh What I like about this film is that it did not do what I expected, which was just spend most of its running time praising Jim Henson. You don't need to convince me that Jim Henson was a genius. I mean, I love to see more Jim Henson stuff. I love to see behind the scenes shit and that's here as well. And people going, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But what this really gets into that makes it kind of separated from previously existing studies of Henson's career specifically is getting into the fact that he was not the person who ran Sesame Street. That was... Actually, John Stone, who was a producer and a prolific director, who was the one who pitched this whole thing initially and made it happen. And him working with uh, Joan Clooney and then eventually Jim Henson and a bunch of other people. And this film following with a, a surprising amount of existing footage of just behind the scenes stuff of like them developing it. How do you do it? Of talking to child psychologists of like what is the right way to do something like this? Because everyone involved, they were not there to make a huge amount of money. This is not like the MCU, right? Of Muppets. They were like, we want to genuinely educate children and do it right. But we also want adults to like this as well and feel good about their kids watching it. And of course the show went on to win. Like, I don't even know how many awards, like a lot over the decades and be universe anybody who doesn't salute sesame street as being important i mean i kind of feel like i would immediately shut them out of my life well like henson doesn't even show up in the first chunk of this movie yeah and, and i think what what the takeaway for me that ended up being the most impactful was was that how intentional they are with the racial makeup of the cast with making it in an inner city with going like, yeah, this is not just for white kids in the suburbs, which is what most of television effectively was for. It was like, these are real people who aren't being given proper education, aren't being given proper access to any of the shit that people should. So let's make a show to help. And that, that blew me away. And, and 
this is one of the more emotionally evocative documentaries I've seen in a while. To where, yeah. like, I think the last, like, probably 30 minutes straight was just an ongoing, what's going to make me cry harder? Was it talking about how the show dealt with this death? Yeah. Or how the show dealt with this death? Or how the show dealt with these setbacks? Well, I mean, simply the fact that one of its major actors, after... 15 years on the air or something died and they were like, what are we going to do? We can just recast him. We're going to do and their decision to go. No, we're, we think it's important that children have to deal with death and understand it, which it absolutely is a thing you have to address at some point. And Sesame Street taking a super ballsy choice to directly address it with, with Big Bird being in the role of the child who you're explaining things from, from the human actors of trying to explain what death is, is like, oh my God, just fall apart crying yeah. watching, man. Like, holy shit. Uh, I'm going to cry talking about it. <laughs> it's so well done <laughs> that you're like, man, this sh it was consistently amazing. I, I feel like you could make three of these films. Like, this is the first chapter because it really focuses on the first, like, 20 years of this, it never gets into like any of the stuff like Electric Company or the Muppet, uh, the Muppet Show or any of the spinoffs. It never really gets into like what happened when it started spreading across the world internationally and how that was addressed in terms but, of how do you sell to other cultures. How about this? I didn't realize because I came about in an era where Kermit the Frog and the Muppets proper were no longer part of Sesame Street. I didn't realize that Kermit was on Sesame Street. What? That I learned that watching this documentary and it wow. blew my mind. All right. So this is totally, it's not totally off topic. It has to do with Kermit, but I was watching uh, Live Tonight with John Oliver the, yesterday and uh, the newest episode, th there's a running joke on there that if he ever accidentally snaps his fingers, George Clooney, George Clooney. appears. Like, he's like, it's his special ability that George Clooney instantly appears. And he, George Clooney's like, oh, my God, will you please stop doing that? He's like, I'm so <laughs> sorry. He's like, look, I have an ability. If I clap my hands, Kermit the Frog appears. But you don't see me doing it because I'm respectful. And he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Do it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fine. He claps his hand and Kermit the Frog appears. And Kermit's like, what, George? He's like, he, he just wanted me to show you. He's like, does that Kermit curled up distressed face and then cuts out? And I'm like, oh, my God, that was amazing. And I was really happy to hear them also kind of come out and acknowledge the fact that the Muppets totally fuck off camera. And like, <laughs> like, like that they are all adults who do adult things when they're not doing a kid show or a variety show. Yeah. I mean, in the heads of the creators, if it you does Fuck off. It counts. It yeah. counts. Okay? I'm not saying it doesn't. If J.K. Rowling can make Dumbledore gay, um, then I mean, Kermit the Frog can fuck and smoke weed. Not saying it doesn't. <laughs> you know, he gets porked regularly, right? <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> uh, no, there is a, a decent amount of that stuff going on here, and even more of it explored during the bonus features here. There's Jerry and Richard, the puppeteers, for about three minutes, which is basically a deleted scenes in which they talk about the best puppeteers on the show. There's When It Went Wrong, Muppet Outtakes, which is kind of repeating a little bit of stuff we already see in the movie, but it's a little under three minutes of like outtakes from the puppeteers fucking around when shit didn't go as intended, which I wish that was like, I would have watched an hour and a half of that. Quite yeah, frankly. I want like a whole movie. You know, I want a behind the scenes Sesame Street movie that's like PG 13 or R of just like, just that. 
It's just the puppets off camera. Uh, there's a really cool look at Joe Raposo, who is musical genius, who is a look at the guy who composed most of the classic Sesame Street songs. Not necessarily performed, but composed them all. Who's a really super cool guy and really fascinating. Watching him, he's just like a delightful dude to watch. There's Sunny Sunny Day's origin of a song for about a minute, which looks at the iconic opening theme. And there's Sounds of Sesame Street featurette for a little under three minutes, which looks about people doing foley and sound effects for children's television. Television. But yeah, this is absolutely delightful. And if you're like my wife and I, you're going to spend this entire movie going, oh, I remember that clip. And oh, I saw that clip. I didn't see that one. Did your wife cry too? Oh, yes. Was there was definitely a period, a period at the end of the movie where we were both just sitting side by side bawling at this movie. <laughs> was she mad at you that you made you watch a movie that made her cry? No, she was so excited and happy. You have to understand the previous movies that I had made her watch was like <laughs> Banditos and one of the Dimension movies. Yeah, no, she's so wait- she was like, I'm happy for this. this she's waiting for like Kermit to come on, hey, oh, and then like a... <laughs> a red spot appears in his head and he starts throwing up blood and you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is the type of stuff Aaron normally makes me watch. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to our next one, which is shockingly the Criterion release for this week. I was so excited when I saw Criterion dipped a little more into what's normally the field of something like Arrow or Synapse and putting out the 1992 neo-noir thriller film Deep Cover, directed by Charles... Uh, I'm sorry, directed by uh, Bill, Bill Duke. Duke, who in his own right is like an action star. He was in Predator, right? Yes, he was. And uh, don't forget, he was also on uh, Bird on a Wire. Yes, he was. Good movie. <laughs> uh, but starring Larry Fishburne as... And what? He was, had to be in his 20s, right? This is 1992? It, it, yeah. Yeah, this had to be in his 20s. This is not quite underage Larry Fishburne, but this is still babyface Larry Fishburne. When we meet him, he's just a child. It's 1972 at Christmas. His son, his his father is like, don't ever be like me, walks into a liquor store and gets brutally murdered right in front of him. So flash to 1991, and now Lawrence Fishburne is a police officer. He gets recruited by a DEA special agent who basically blackmails him for all extents and purposes to go undercover which he does not want to do, but it's he's kind of put in a position like you either do this or, you know, you suck. And saying you are all your psychological profile says you're more like a criminal than you are like a cop, which probably comes from his relationship with his father growing up. And he poses as a drug dealer named John Hull to work his way up the West Coast drug network here, dealing with South American politicians and drug dealers who are bringing cocaine into there. And he ends up connecting with a underboss uh, played by Jeff Goldblum, who is a lawyer who's super corrupt, who sort of like is a facilitator here. I mean, the, you got to have a white guy in there somewhere in yeah. California, you know, to do it in the 90s. So... And him convincing him, like, I'm so good, I'm going to be your partner, we're going to do this. And that point where he's like, wow, all this, like, fucking pussy and fast cars shit is kind of cool, but no, I'm still, I'm still a cop, I'm still going to do my thing. But that's what I like about it. Like, a lesser film would have had him just be, like, in New Jack City or something, would have been like, nah, I'm too, I'm, I feel like I'm corrupted by the pluses of being a criminal but this film is more about him being corrupted by 
the corruption that he is revealed of his own of the so-called good guys of the FBI and the police force of like, wow, they're terrible people and they're only in this for what they can get out of it. And they don't care who they fuck along the way. And you end up with a film that, you know, despite not being saluted wildly at the time as a major classic, I feel like has aged pretty damn well. I, I feel like if you like Devil in the Blue Dress, you're going to go like, oh, this is another movie you're really, really going to watch of neo-noir that's hyper-stylized that almost feels like Michael Mann early stuff in it and is really fun. If there's a downside to this, it's that I don't feel that Jeff Goldblum and Denzel are are, are on, I'm sorry, Larry Fishburne are on the same page as far as like what movie they're in. See... Most of my issues in this movie came down to the editing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like the I like the story idea that treats the FBI and the U.S. government as another criminal group of drug runners, almost where they it were. almost feels like a like this feels like a gang war movie um, from the point of view of someone who is initially a spy and then isn't sure like which side he works for. Cause the U S government is very much a gang. Yeah. Um, but they're not. And, and I, and, and I didn't mind Jeff Goldblum's kind of weird out there performance. Cause it felt very much like the people I know who work those kinds of jobs. And like, yeah, I believe that shit. What really ended up bothering me was this is one of the most nineties movies I've ever seen. It's very there 90s. Is, yeah. There's avid farts all over the place. There is <laughs> frame rate shifts. Like this movie could not be more, like this movie could, you could give this to me and go, Hey, so this was made in the late nineties. Nobody ever saw it. If I didn't know who Larry Fishburne was, it's actually a parody of of nineties style of filmmaking. I would be like, yeah, that tracks that tracks entirely. Cause every bad habit they do in the nineties, they do in this movie. I didn't but, feel that way, but like, yeah. I, like it's it's well acted. I like all the characters in it. I thought the story was really cool. I mean, there, uh, there's all those a, things that are definitely part of the '90s filmmaking, like lots and lots and lots of neon. I don't know. Was there saxophones? I didn't even like. I don't remember, but probably there was. Right, but that is. It wasn't like playing on cliche. It was just kind of like the way neo noir was at that point. And I think yeah. this is better than most of the neo noir from that period. I haven't seen it since it came out, which I remember I was like, eh. But I think it was part of that. It was like in amongst a slew of them. Uh, Clarence Williams III is great here as a cop who is determined to figure out what's going on and knows something is up with Lawrence Fishburne's character, but also knows that he's not what he appears. Uh, you know, who just died recently, by the way. Yeah. Tip of that. Uh, I don't know, man. For me, this really worked. I loved all the very... You know, every word that someone speaks is just diamonds coming out of their mouth. No one actually talks that way in real life, but it's written like a classic, like Raymond Chandler thing where everybody talks in words that are way too cool than the way anybody else actually really talks. I was like, yes, that's what I like. I love that shit for this sort of thing. And it fits with all the, like I said, hyper stylized neo noir in the nineties style. 
No, I, I will agree with you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I was never not entertained by this. It was just every few minutes I would kind of crack up laughing at the screen. And, and I realized, too, that this movie came out in 1992. And so I feel like I'm criticizing it for probably setting a lot of the standards of style and being more influential than you thought it was. Yeah. Instead of being reductive. Because it's not. It came out early in the 90s. So... You know, there's a reason it's in the Criterion. But, no, I, I, I'd agree. This is a absolutely worth a watch. Uh, Criterion. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I really dig it when Criterion goes super weird and gets something that's a little more populist like this. Yeah. Because uh, it's always uh, such a weird, like, oh, okay, you're releasing that? I... All right, I'm going to like look at this again in a new light and like actually think about this in a way I maybe had prior. Uh, by the way, you see, they finally announced they're going to start putting out 4Ks. I didn't. That's good yeah. to hear. They finally said we're going to do it. And I was like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. What took, I mean, literally Synapse, Arrow, like uh, all these other small, much smaller companies are doing it. I'm like, Jesus Christ. And there's a lot. Of, and every time I get a list from them, like you get to pick one. Like five things. I'm like, damn it. This is a fucking Sophie's choice. Uh, now I get to go back and pick the other ones. But the one thing I'm like, please re-release seven in 4K because A, it's not out in 4K. And B, I accidentally spilled water all over my booklet that came with it. So please re-release it. <laughs> uh, this comes with a, uh, a new program, which is great with Bill Duke talking about his acting and directing career. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Bill Duke, also really good, like an hour of that, of them on stage at the American Film Institute Conservatory <coughs> in 2018, having a great conversation with the wonderful Elvis Mitchell critic, who's the perfect guy talking to them about it. I always feel like if Elvis Mitchell and I got, got together, we'd fucking be best friends forever. Maybe that's just my white boy hope that the, the, the 50 something black guy with silver dreadlocks would like think, Oh, you're one of the good ones. I don't know. <laughs> there's rachel j raquel j gates and michael b gillespie a film conversation with two film scholars who talk about this and the 90s era that was just produced brand new there's Claudrina and Harold and Oliver Wang, a filmed conversation with the author and sociology professor who talk about the importance of, which is the one thing my wife asked me about. She's like, are they going to talk about the song? Are they going to talk about the song? The title song for this movie, which apparently was a big deal. I didn't even know. Like the song was uh, by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. I guess what? it, I guess it was Snoop Dogg's first recorded appearance from what she was telling me. Uh, I do not know this. Yeah, it, it peaked on 166 at Billboard 200, but it ended up at not number nine on top R&B hip hop albums of all time but that Billboard put out. Yeah, I mean, it was a big deal at the time and was like one of the people talked about more about the song than they did about the movie. So, you know, that's there. Let's move on to our next one, which <laughs> I know we I'm reasonably sure we both dug the living shit out of, which is the television series Gangs of London. I presented this to Aaron like this. Aaron, I know this is already a big stack this week, and I know I don't normally hand you TV shows unless you're already currently watching them. And this is totally up to you whether or not you want to even watch this. I can pass it on or ask the other guys who do the show with me if they're interested in doing it, or I can do it just to, like talk about it by myself. But it's was created in a lot of the episodes directed by Gareth Evans, who did the Raid movies <laughs> on AMC, and I totally forgot it existed, and 
I was when they sent it to me, and I never asked for TV shows I haven't seen anymore for digital noise because I'm like, I don't have time for that. I've got so much to keep up with. But I was like, holy shit, Gareth Evans! I totally forgot he was working on it. Is my pulling my hair out? Like, I forgot that he had done a TV show because we're always going, when's the next Gareth Evans thing? Well, it was already coming out. On, on, on Sky TV. Well, it turns out the show is so highly rated and so popular, but also so expensive to produce that Sky's like, we can't do it anymore and canceled it. And 20 seconds later, AMC is like, we got gotcha. you. We'll do it. We're taking it over from here. So I actually didn't know that they were getting the second season. Yep. There's a second season oh. being made right now, which makes me, does my heart. Oh my God. So good because I walked into this, you know, a little nervous because I want it to be good so bad. I think the raid movies are my two favorite action movies of all time. And I, I love this director's work. Nobody films an action scene as well as he, as he, Gareth does. I have actually gone back and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched the way he shoots action films and tried to figure out what he's doing so right and taken notes and still feel a little mystified about what I'll tell you why. He's mastered the handheld camera and he's mastered making it look real. He makes it look so brutally real, but he also does, and you're right, the handheld camera for sure, but he also doesn't do that annoying shaky cam shit that everybody does to cover up the fact they don't know how to film an action scene. He He gets actors who actually know how to do fucking action scenes are willing to do brutal stunts, and he is very clever in a way that I can only compare to Jackie Chan in the way he choreographs his action scenes so that when things happen, you're like, wow, that was neat. I couldn't have, there, I wouldn't have expected that action thing to happen in this, especially when it comes to the, you know, kills. The, the other thing. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, I mean, just uh, Jackie Chan doesn't do a lot of kills in his movie, but so that's the difference. But like, it's that carefully choreographed. You're like, wow, every movement in here was planned to the tiniest degree. And Gangs of London, even though it's a TV show, is no exception. Now, you say, all right, well, it's a bunch of, it's not just a movie. It's a shit ton of episodes here to get through. Is it, would I want to watch that? I mean, like, I remember thinking, yes. well, I really liked Warrior, you know, which was a martial arts China, uh, Chinese people in San Francisco at the turn of the century, but that's very campy and fun. The fight scenes are phenomenal, but it's campy. Gangs of London is not going no. for campy. I- you know what it is? It's it's the raid too, um, where he blew it up and expanded it and turned the crime world into this epic, um, operatic, just bigger than life characters, but also all dealing with very real issues. Mm. It, it, it's that, but turned into a TV series. Yeah, and like the, the first episode is an hour and a half movie. There's no two ways about it. But the, from then on, like all the episodes run about an hour. They are they are. It's less the wire, and, and it really does feel like if you filmed the raid, but as a the raid two as a TV show in English, <laughs> it has that yeah. same tone to everything. It's all dark. All the characters are super serious all the time. There's he uses CG in the same way that Fincher does, where he doesn't really go in and do a lot of flashy stuff. But I think that there's more CG in this TV show than almost any other show I've seen because they'll use it to replace a background wall so that they can do a fancy shot or they, they use it subtly 
to enable them to do a lot of one take sequences, a lot of really brutal violence or yeah. really impactful fights. Like anytime this starts getting into fight sequences, sometimes it feels like a martial arts film a little bit, but mostly it feels like a fucked up brutal horror film in the yeah. way it handles blood. Yeah, no, you're right, but it never feels you never are taken out of it by that. It, no. it It's these characters who are like very, very, very good at what they do, but are always at threat of being the ones to lose a fight. You never feel like a guy is like the rock in a movie where you're like, well, they're not going to lose. Like this is a film where lots of the main characters die horribly during the length of it. You're like, holy shit. It's the suicide squad of British television series. So you're like, God damn, there's no telling who's going to bite it and who's not going to. And it follows, it starts with the death of their biggest actor, Meany, who, of course, I know best from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but who's been in a shit ton of stuff over the years. He's Finn Wallace. He's a major Irish crime boss. He's assassinated by someone. We don't know really what happened, except that the kid, it was just a kid who ends up killing him seemingly almost by accident, who obviously thinks that he was somebody he wasn't, was set up. And we see a scene where his son straight uh, uh, straight up murders the shit out of him, <laughs> played by uh, Joel, Joe Cole, playing Sean Wallace, son, who is like just kills him <laughs> brutally after the fact. But then it's like, okay, now the rest of the show is what happens between those things well, as we follow the series of events as no one knows what fucking happened. Who killed this guy? Why? And there's so many gang. It's called Gangs of London. There's like 30 fucking gangs in London of all different racial types. But the most interesting thing I thought was that the the African American or African American African British I guess gang and the Irish are one gang because Finn Wallace Calmini and his best friend like basically family member uh is like uh, uh Lu- Lucian <coughs> Misamati Ed and his his children they grew up together and form this all together where Ed was like, I'm, you know, you're the, you are still the boss though, man. I will do whatever you say. You're good at it. But they were always treated like one family. The kids grew up as one family. So it's got a godfather element of it as we watch suspicion and all these things start to split people apart because there's so many factors at work. It's so much more than just the violence, which is, you know, 10 out of 10 violence. It's an incredibly well-told story. Yeah, and it it ends up feeling more along the lines of something that's a little bit melodramatic because the it uh, you know what that I I want to take that back almost immediately. Uh, what I want to point out though is that like it it ends up not feeling like your average crime film. It it, it isn't really very cold. It isn't really very calculating. It is slower, but it ends up being more about the drama of watching this family of gangs start to unravel due to vengeance and greed and it's it's like watching one of those hbo series about a family that just like falls apart and starts to really just start to just tear into each other with words only this time you know with machine guns Mm. and machetes yeah and sometimes it's the kind of brutal where it's like the raid type fights where you're like God damn, I rewind that and watch it again. But other times it is like 
more heroic bloodshed type stuff. Like people, there's a, I think it's episode five where the family steps in and just massacres a whole fucking community of people with machine guns. Three actually. Was it episode it, that three? Happens, that happens super early on. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And that well, scene is like 20 minutes long of them just like, of just nonstop. I'm like, how did they afford to make this? Nothing about it seems fake. It's all incredibly brutal and well shot. I was like, just glued to the screen. Yeah. The, the, the style of the film, era of the film, the style of the show is as much a character as the actual characters. Mm-hmm. Like this movie is about how it tells the story. Like, like what we kind of left out about that sequence is the vast majority of it is in one take or, or one, I put that in quotes, take, but one continuous shot stitched together of a bunch of them. And it's almost flawless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the violence is on par with anything you see in a film. Like I, when you hear how expensive the show is, you see that shit on screen every oh, second yeah. of the of the show. There was never a moment in this. I went, Oh, I could see the, that looked fake or a moment where I went an actor. was like, I didn't believe your performance uh, early on the stuff with the son, Joe Cole. I w- he was so, I don't know, distant that I'm like, I don't know about this guy, but there's a reason for that. As the show goes on, as you're like, shit, this guy's a fucking sociopath, you know, and who wouldn't be like raised by a father who uh, didn't want to raise a sociopath, but like we see in scenes of flashbacks, because you get Call Meany, even though he dies before the film, the thing even starts. Yeah, he, basically, he sh- appears in lots of flashbacks as we learn more and more about the way the him and his brother were brought up and why they're, you know, they are the way they are. I don't know, man. I think this is kind of a masterpiece. I agree. I agree entirely. This is one of the best single seasons of television I've seen in a while. Oh, a long while. Yeah, agreed. I mean, if you're one of those people who's always looking for unassailable seasons of TV, I mean, I was telling the people, this is the raid crossed with the shield. Like, you should see it. Yeah. <laughs> you I know, mean, not necessarily in plot, but in terms of quality. Like, yeah. that's what it is. There's not a lot of bonus features, though. There's five brief production featurettes, and there is a l- little more interesting, about 16 minutes of breakdowns of the fights, which of uh, two of the big fights here, which is what you want to see, quite frankly, for the extra features, because, like I said, I still am just in awe of how <gasps> this guy does what he does. He's the best action director in the entire world. Nobody's better yeah. than Gareth. Well, and, and he's doing like horror now too, which, which I've seen his Netflix movie and it's great too. This, yeah. this is a phenomenal film. Or I keep calling it a film. This yeah, I is know. a phenomenal show. Uh, it is one of the most beautifully shot things I've seen in a while. Uh, it feels like a high budget movie. There were occasional moments where I could see the seams, but like they would last for four seconds and I'd be like, Oh, that's a little ugly. And about the time that that thought would process into my head, I, uh, you would see someone flawlessly get their head shot off or like this amazing one take fight with an axe. And you're just like, Oh, you know what? Never mind. That one shot is okay. <laughs> Well, our next one is going back into film, so you can say film again, Aaron. Yay. It's good. Uh, Dead and Buried. This is a re-release by Blue Underground, who is also getting now into 4K. Come on, Criterion. What took so long? But (laughs) this is considered by horror aficionados of the 80s as 1981 film directed by Gary Sherman uh, to be one of the real unappreciated greats of spooky slow burn horror films. It's really kind of Lovecraftian in its way without directly being Lovecraftian, but 
Also, a guy who regularly worked with Lovecraft Elements, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, uh, was the guy who wrote the screenplay for this. This was originally banned in a lot of places, including UK, because it was considered to be too brutal. Uh, it actually had obscenity charges put against it. It's really not as bad as all that. I mean, this is not a Fulci film here, quite frankly, but it is a cult film that has every right to be a full cult film because it follows this photographer. Well, no, it doesn't. It follows initially a photographer arriving in the small town of Potter's Bluff, which by the name, you're like, well, that's got to be a town where Lovecraft shit happens, <laughs> right? Uh, and he gets killed horribly right in the beginning of this. And we find out very early on that something's wrong in the people in this town. Even though they, they all seem friendly. They all seem really nice. But something is definitely wrong. And Sheriff Dan Gillis, played by James Farentino, uh, who works with the local uh, coroner, Jack Albertson, is like, what is going on? There is murders happening in this town, and I don't know what is happening. And as the film goes on, we find more and more of, like, there's some weird shit going through almost everyone in this town that they're all on the side of murdering anybody new who comes into it, as we see a series of people come in and they get killed horribly. And has something to do with resurrection from the dead. I just don't want to say too much, Aaron, because I think one of the real pleasures of this movie is the discovery that comes in the last 20 minutes of this film. Uh, Agreed. With a beautifully shot and really, wow, like for, for this time period, like the gore stuff in here is just spectacularly well done. Like, Wow, that's really nice. I think Rob Botton did the special effects here, who's a, a Academy Award winning uh, effects guy. Like, they are great and thoughtful and artistic. And when it gets to the final, like, wrap up, like, what the, the twist that you don't want to believe is coming, but is coming, it's affecting. Oh, it got me. So, f- first of all, I want to say that I think this is maybe the best title I've seen Blue Underground put out since I started reviewing with you. Wow. Like Blue the movies they put out, like I've enjoyed stuff they've put out in the past, but the ones we've talked about are always like, Yeah, we're basically watching just like people get horribly murdered and that there's nothing really in the movie beyond that. Yeah. And I went into the, this expecting that, and this is a legitimately twisty thriller. Uh, it, I can see it getting the obscenity charges at the time, because the first hour, it plays like The Hunt, where it's like, introduce you to a character, establish them a little bit, kill them horribly. Introduce them to a new character, establish them <laughs> for a little bit, kill them horribly, and rinse and repeat. Um, but when they actually get into the police story, it becomes a lot more interesting. This also star kind of co-stars Melody Anderson as the wife of the sheriff, which I'm calling out because she filmed this movie the year after she made Flash Gordon. She plays the lead in Flash Gordon, the female lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, 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 I squeed a little bit when I saw her in this and paused <laughs> it. I was like, that's her, right? Oh my God, it's her. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the gore is effective. The story is good. The script is a really good script. If you can, if you don't mind just the repetitive nature of the beginning, this is a legitimately good, surprisingly fuck with your mind horror film. Yeah. Like I thought about this shit for a couple of days after and I was not expecting to have that response to it. It was the third time I've seen this, but it's been 
eight years since the last time I saw it, I think. I don't, I don't know exactly how long, but something like that. And I had totally forgotten the end of it. And it still, it creeped me the fuck out. Like, I'm watching it and going like, I don't get scared by stuff easily, but this was scaring me and freaking me out, even on the yeah. rewatch, going like, this is, like, and not because of gory reasons, this is conceptually I, upsetting. I think it's legitimately one of the better ending shots I've seen in this genre. Yeah. Like, I, I love, I, I love the end of this movie. It is a great film. Now, I do say that Dan O'Bannon wrote this. Okay, so the deal is here is that it's listed as co-written by Ronald Shushet. Apparently, O'Bannon had come in to help and rewrite some stuff, uh, agreed to have his name on the project. Uh, apparently, Shushet just didn't use any of his material at all, but uh, they wanted O'Bannon's name on the credits is what it came down to well, because he was kind of a name at that point. O'Bannon, even in the bonus features here, goes, I don't even know why you're interviewing me. I had almost nothing to do with this movie. <laughs> I did not know that. And go, Shushet, you wrote a damn fine movie. He does. No, no, you know. No disrespect to him, most certainly. Uh, was Ronald Shusett, who wrote Alien with Dan O'Bannon and later wrote, okay, less credit, Alien versus Predator. <laughs> you know, at least it's not Requiem. At least it's not Requiem. True. But yeah, this is a really good, like one of the unheralded classics of the 80s that most people don't talk about. I learned about it because of Jason Murphy from who anybody who used to follow me on spill.com might know from League of Extremely Ordinary Gentlemen, but he's on modern, the show Modern Rogue on YouTube right now with Brian Brushwood. He first turned me onto this. He used to do 24 hour horror film festivals at his house where we'd all just go over there and watch whatever he had programmed. And they tended to all be like, wow, that was like stuff I've never seen before, but always heard of, never saw. I was like, God damn, that was good. This is great. And this is the ultimate edition. It is a 4K and a Blu-ray edition in here with three archival video commentaries in the previous Blu-ray edition, plus a brand new one in here. One's uh, director Gary Sherman. One is co-writer, co-producer Ronald Shusett and actress Linda Turley. One is cinematographer Stephen Poster. And one is critics Troy Howarth and Nathaniel Thompson. That's the new one. There's Behind the Scenes, a brand new program with uh, the director Gary Sherman, who just is going through raw footage from behind the scenes that they were shooting just for fun on 8mm back in 1981, with him talking about it with some other people who worked on the film there it's like 34 minutes and actually was super fun those things usually aren't but that was fun there's dead and buried locations now and then goes back at key locations uh murders mystery and music gary sherman and composer john ronzetti talk about their collaboration on this the pages of potter's bluff a new interview with author chelsea quinn yarborough who ended up years after this film came out wrote a novelization of it Stan Winston, I'm sorry, I said Rob Botton earlier. It was Stan Winston who did Dead and Buried EFX. Stan Winston, also Academy Award winner, uh, archival program here where he talks about doing his work on here. Robert England, who, you know, Freddy Krueger, very early appearance for him, very early. He's like a teenager almost, uh, appeared on here, him talking about that. And then Dan O'Bannon, Crafting Fear archival program with, the, you know, the screenwriter who's not really the screenwriter for this, talking about his love of this and also loving this film, although he didn't really write it. There's actually, if you watch this, you're going to watch it and you're like, I feel like I recognize almost everyone in this film because almost everyone went on to TV shows and other movies. Then most of them didn't become big names, but like almost everybody is like, oh, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. For what it's worth for the audience who tracks and has listened to a bunch of shows I've done, this is one of the rare few titles that I've seen that I'm going to buy this shit. And wow. Own it. 
It's really worth it. Uh, our last film is, and I saved the arguably worst for last, uh, <laughs> Spiral from the Book of Saw. Now, full confession, I am just not a fan of the Saw films. I like it. I like the, I like the concept a lot. I think the idea is cool. I think there's a lot of visual stuff that's cool that happens in terms of the iconography of Saw. But I think the films themselves are not good. Even the first one is like, eh, there's a few good moments, but it's not a very good movie. And they just get worse as they go along until the point where they're like telenovela bad. I, I think the first movie is entirely okay with a great end. And I have, basically loathed every other movie in the franchise I've ever seen. Well, fair enough. And Until. This, this brings back uh, the director who did 2, 3, and 4, which are not good, Darren Lynn Boseman, but who has done other stuff that I liked, uh, to do the ninth installment in the film. And this is after they already rebooted it in Jigsaw, where they forget about that reboot. They're like, you know what? Nobody liked that. We're going to pretend that didn't happen. Here's a brand new reboot, which isn't really a reboot. It's a sequel, but it's also like Jigsaw's long since dead. We're not even like, it's straight up Jigsaw's dead. But like in the many, many, many sequels, there's a lot of copycat killers who follow up what Jigsaw does, which is capture people because they have some vengeance shit going on and set a series of traps like Jigsaw did. Like, you have a choice between these two things. You can either watch the entirety of Spiral Book of Saw or you can cut your own tongue off. You know, I mean, it's a hard call. I don't know. I don't know, know what I'd do. <laughs> I don't know what I would do. <laughs> the reason this even exists is because Chris Rock apparently is a huge fan of the Saw films and he was uh i really i will get behind this i will star in this i'll talk i'll tell my friend samuel jackson to be in this i'll be a cop he'll play my dad who's an older cop we will be in this fucking movie and we will relaunch the series because i think saw is good and has a chance to that was a huge mistake i don't know what to say james wan and Leigh winnell who i both deeply respect come in as the executive producers here <clears throat> and i will tell you this is probably the best Saw film, like, but that's not high praise. So it, every issue with the core concept of Saw that I have exists in this movie. Yes. I think it's a stupid movie. I don't like the, I don't like the idea of the kills or the methodology. Having said that, I think this is a pretty movie. I think that Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson legitimately put in good performances. Uh, there were a couple of interesting and cool, fun bits. That's about it. Like, you know what? I like, I also like the idea that these movies are explicitly from second one. Yo, cops are corrupt. Yo, just, just like they all suck. And, and I appreciated that all cops are bad approach the movie took, but. God, I, I hate the Saw movies. And yeah. if you hate the Saw movies, you're not going to like this. And if you like the Saw movies, you don't really give a shit about quality. You'll probably enjoy this quite a bit. You, you know, know I, it's I'm, the best. I'm with you in that it's the best shot of the films. It looks real pretty. It's definitely got a higher budget than a lot of them. It's definitely got better acting than a lot of them, because a lot of them are, like I said earlier about telenovela, they are telenovela level acting. Like, oh my God, this is so atrociously sub red box rental bad levels of acting this is not terrible i don't think chris rock is a great actor i've not seen the fourth season of fargo which people praise him more but i think it's 
it's fine, I guess. But I mean, it literally starts with him coming into his, he's a policeman coming into his boss's office. He's like, that's it. You fucked up for the, you're too off the book there. Wild card cop. Give me your gun and your badge. I'm like, are we really starting this movie Dude, this way? <laughs> it's less than 10 minutes into the movie before he turns and tells everyone in the room, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> you're cool. And fuck you most no. of all. <laughs> it's all these cliches from non horror films. Oh. from cop films and i'm like was this originally intended supposed to be funny because and, it doesn't come across that way when watching just to, this. Say, just to say it explicitly you will know who the killer is about 30 minutes into the yes movie. it is just there's no doubt at all they do everything they can but throw them up on screen and say this is the killer process of elimination there's they try and throw like a blockade in your way but you're like i'm sorry i've seen a lot of horror <laughs> movies that i know exactly what you do and don't do when someone is actually the killer or not and you're trying to throw a blockade in that person is the killer there's yeah. no question and then sure enough the film's like surprise and you're like yeah i wasn't and there's there was no surprise at all oh like, my God. at all uh, you know, I mean, whatever. This isn't the type of film that I'm that concerned with it. It's agreed. Uh, a lot of things. The script is terrible to this movie. The conception of the traps is one of the worst in all of these films. I'm like, guys, has anybody watched some of your competitors for doing trap movies that did it so much better than you like the escape room movies or uh what's the one where the guy's got the leather mask that ties up in the middle the collector the collector which i think is the best of all of good them. movies those are good movies really genuinely good movies yeah uh th this is just it's just no. dull and you can't do generic boring oh my god there's no surprises here at all traps i mean they're badly filmed they tell you right from the beginning here's what's going to happen if you don't do this. there's no surprises mid trap that's what's oh. made some of the other ones work where it's like oh by the way you do this the no that's not happening it's just okay i guess we're just waiting for a gore shot yeah no just it's bad i don't know for some reason the low point for me was when they showed handheld cam footage of some little like figurine for a webcast and they do a dolly zoom crane shot in the handheld footage yeah that is not physically possible at yes all. And, and i know that's a weird nitpick to have but you know like you can't even do that right there's it's just like you you watch the the budget that went into just the quality of the film the way it's shot and the or i guess probably in post you're like it looks crisper and cleaner than any of the saw films we've seen for a while the sets are better designed there's clearly some more money that went into it probably because you got two real actors in it you know like oh people might actually view this who've never seen a saw film before because of that and it's still I, I liked it better than the other Saw films overall. I mean, I think the first one, when it came out, was a bit better of a film in the sense that at least it was somewhat of we didn't know what we, was coming. But come on. Yeah, it was a small <laughs> surprise. This movie is a is a big, predictable mess. Yeah. I mean, if this is the only Saw film you're ever going to see, like you've never seen any of them, I'd probably say, sure, watch this one instead of the others. It's probably the best made of them. Actually, but I'm not even going to say that. Go go watch the first one. All right. Fair enough. Uh, there's audio commentary with the director, co-screenwriter writer jo Josh Stolberg, and composer Charlie Klauser. There's another composer with producers Oren Coles and Mark Berg. There's the consequences of your actions creating Spiral for about an hour, which is a background piece about it. Actually, the weird thing about the last like two 
Saw releases is they came both with extensive bonus features like uh, like like behind the scenes that really get into like everybody thinking about it and like what's the history of it and how do we do another one we're like wow this is so much better than the movie itself why wasn't the movie better there's drawing inspiration illustrated trap breakdowns for a little under nine minutes which darren lynn boosman like walking literally through the sequences uh decoding the marketing spiral which goes into some of the poster designs over the years which admittedly are Probably the number one thing I can say or good about these movies that the poster designs were from a marketing standpoint, really fucking yeah. disturbing and cool and were well done. A plus marketing art department, man. Yeah. You go, guys. <laughs> and then there's trailers. But yeah, this is nothing special. Let's get into the final question I have for you. What is our pick for the week? There's so many good movies and things to pick from this week. I don't even know. So I'm just going to let you pick. Vengeance Trails. It's the Arrow Western set. Like, as much as I really had a lot of fun with Diamond Gen, I know that that is a niche set that's just my particular niche. Um, I think Vengeance Trails, like, with the quality of the movies, the uh, there was pretty good commentary on one of them. Like, I, I enjoyed okay. that whole set. Uh, I and- did, too. Yeah, I'm I, I, maybe it was because it was the biggest surprise. Because a lot of the time, sets like, well, we're not even saying on the cover what the names of the movies are. We're just kind of fucking shuffling some shit we have the rights to in together. We expect like eh, they'll be all right, or maybe one of them will be good and the others won't be. But that was like four really great spaghetti westerns with yeah. some big name people in them, both behind the scenes and in front of them. Going, I really liked the shit out of all four of these films. And if you're a spaghetti western fan. Man, you should check that shit out. Yeah, th- this is the set that made me realize I like spaghetti westerns and not just Sergio Leone movies. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to wrap it up there. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me again this week. I know you had a big stack, but part of it is stuff because I know, like I said, you were going to watch it anyway. I promise yeah, your exactly. next stack will be considerably smaller. <laughs> I promise. I, I don't believe you. I do. No, I, we got three people now. I'm already down to the point. I got like literally three movies sitting in my house to watch aside from the six I've already watched. But like, yes, it'll be smaller. I swear. I swear, man. I swear. <laughs> wow. That sounded diabolical. You're going to saw my ass, aren't you? You're going to like, I'm going to wake up. It's like, <laughs> would you like to play a game? Chris God Cox? damn it, Chris. <laughs> Are you ready to play a game? <laughs> You have a choice. You can either get all these reviews in on time through Aaron, or you can gouge your own eyes out with his penis. I was just going to say, or you can watch Spiral again. (laughs) No. Eyes gone. Oh, well. It's not that bad. Is it?